Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership and Business Development Solutions. We have with us this morning, Corey Rodley. She is a candidate for the Ward 2 City Council race in Springfield, Oregon. This is Ward 3. I'm so sorry, I'll have to change my edit. I lived in Ward 2 for so long, I automatically still see Ward 2, so I'll make that adjustment. Uh, this is our third opportunity to interview. In the initial race, there were three candidates, herself, Johanna Stadeo, and Chris McAllister. And so now we have a runoff in November between herself and Johannes. And so this morning, we're going to have a different kind of interview, more of a conversational interview regarding what she's learned, what are some of the issues important to her, some of the things that have changed as we've gone through this process of COVID, as we've gone through this process of economic upheaval, as we've gone to this, through this process of schools being shut down, there are many, many, many things. And we need to talk about, if she's elected to city council, what are some of her perspectives and paradigms? So Corey, good morning, welcome, and thank you. Good morning, thank you for having me. Good. Looking forward to this. Yes, I'm looking forward to it as well. It's uh, much needed. I think it's, voters need to know who the candidates are. Voters need to know who is vying for the opportunity to be their elected representative. Now, I have not, I intentionally have not read your bio again today because bios are only part of the story. And there really is so much more to a person than a biography could ever distill or synthesize about their lives. So we are about two and a half months away from the election. Yeah, well, yeah, a little under two and a half months. A little under two and a half months. How has it felt, you know, there's rules around campaigning, mm -hmm. but once it was determined that you and your opponent were gonna have to go into a runoff, there was a quiet time, so to speak. What did you feel like, what were some of your thoughts during that time as the pandemic was really unfolding and all the things that were taking place? What were your thoughts regarding my platform is going to have to be a little bit different now. Yeah, well, what's interesting is that the, the priorities that I've been talking about since the beginning in terms of um, affordable housing and family wage jobs, all of that is still very real. And I think like a lot of the work in my day job at United Way, the pandemic really just just really blew the lid off of why that's so important and how folks who don't have secure housing or who are you know working two or three lower wage jobs are more at risk when something like this happens so it really was it really what it did for me is it really kind of clarified that oh yeah there's there's reasons these aren't just fluffy things there's reasons that these are important and that these make for resilient communities so that's part of it um, what's what the pandemic has changed really is um, and, and I have to and I lump the pandemic together with the racial unrest and the increased uh, attention that people are paying to our public safety and people's sort of awareness around this. So all of that is kind of coming together, I think, and it's putting a lot of pressure on even our local government. I mean, we're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing now people in Portland are like, we want the we want the mayor to fix this. So it's it's really 
amping up what it is that we need from our elected officials. And I think that that's been, for me, um, it's been great. <laughs> and not great in like a woo way, but great in the like, I, I, I really genuinely think that democracy depends on people being involved and people being informed. And I also have part of the reason I stepped into this race is that I think that we we should expect more from our local officials and that Springfield is a growing, evolving, diversifying city and we need to have our government and our our systems grow and evolve and diversify with that. And so I think this pressure from the public just just also just really shines a light on why that's so important that instead of us doing less or expecting less or using the caveat of, you know, our elected officials are volunteers. It, it, none of that should matter. I mean, these are, these are people that are stepping into these roles and that we need to be there to meet whatever it is that comes. So that's part of it that's changed for me is that it's just, I really feel like there is a, a, a mandate from the public to step things up. And then for me, during that what was considered quiet time, um, it was it's was, it was a very interesting thing because you I, I I got the most votes in the primary, so it's like you win an election, but you're still running for office. So there there's, was a little bit of like a two day like, all right, fine. But then for me, then I just immediately sort of kicked into doing the things that you do, which is reaching out to voters and fundraising. And the great thing is that I was able to then look at, because this is who I am as a person, so I was able to look at the sort of the statistics and who voted where in what parts of the city. And so it gave me another layer of understanding of Springfield from the early knocking on doors and the getting to know people. So then I was able to say, okay, here's what's happening and here's where um, you know people are voting this way or voting that way. And so that was actually really interesting and illuminating for me. I think it's interesting. Uh, you've said a lot of things here and I want to touch base on several of them. First and foremost, I would just like to be clear that I agree with you regarding, I appreciate the sacrifices, devotion and dedication of all of our elected officials. And yes, they are unpaid, but it was also their choice to run for office and it was their choice to say, I will lead and I want your vote and I will be here when the storm comes. And the response when the storm comes is from sometimes it's, well, we're not even paid. That's not, you knew that going in. You know that going in, Corey, that if you win this election, it is an unpaid position. You are a volunteer. And I particularly as a voter and this city expect our elected officials to accept that condition and that reality and to do what you've been elected to do uh, without excuse. Mm -hmm. so I appreciate you saying that because we've had far too much silence and some of the really big issues that have been affecting our community and the idea that we're not paid is not acceptable. And I just want to make that statement. I have a question for you. Affordable, affordable housing. It doesn't seem like, I could be wrong, but it doesn't seem like we've made much headway as a city. We have a serious, serious problem of people being unable to have places to live, afford places to live, we have a growing unhoused population in Lane County that is, be is becoming frightening. And it seems like locally we are not, I could be wrong in this, I don't know if there's a policy, but it seems like we definitely do not want the unhoused in Springfield. 
muddying up what we see. And what are, what are people supposed to do when they don't have a place to live? I don't have the answers, but you know, what are your thoughts on that? What do you know about particular policies and how might you might have an impact in those areas? So there's a lot to unpack there too. Yeah. Um, because I think, and I think I've said this before, I don't think that Springfield as a city is, has failed completely in terms of putting focus onto affordable housing. But I think that we haven't done enough and we need to do more. And we, we've, we've done some strategies. One, we did make, the, uh, make it possible for people to have ADUs and kind of waive those fees. And we're very supportive of that. That didn't get slogged down in Springfield like it did in Eugene. It's still for the average person, because I have a couple of friends who were like, yes, I'm going to do this because, you know, some of these, some of our lots here in Springfield are definitely big enough that you could put an ADU on. And they were like, you know, it's still really cost prohibitive for me to do this. Like, I, I, it's still, a, it's still hard. So I, I think there's something for us to kind of dig into around that, that who, who can really afford to do that? Is it, have we made it so that the average person with a nice big backyard can put an ADU in there? So there's that. Um, I think we also, there was funding coming from the state and we have some really strong nonprofit organizations, um, you know, like St. Vinny's and, and ones that are focused on housing that were able to like attract some funding and leverage that to build like supportive housing and some of that kind of housing, which I think is great. But it also isn't enough in terms of just the affordable housing for your, your first time home buyer to be able to do that or enough of that middle housing of like, like my spouse and I talk about, you know, eventually we may sell this house and move into like a condo or a duplex and we want to still be in Springfield. So there's not enough of that kind of quality housing and part of and i've had a few conversations with people who build and they still feel like you know some of the the requirements and the fees and the things that it takes to actually build that kind of housing are also kind of cost prohibitive that it's it's more advantageous for builders to build higher end housing as opposed to affordable housing so i think that's a place for us as our officials and the folks who are working for the city and to partner with other 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 people because this is really a regional a statewide challenge so it's not on us to solve it all together it's you know we can partner and get really creative and start to say okay we've got which we do we have land you know we've got these land banks and we've got land how do we leverage that with somebody who wants to come in and build this neighborhood or this development and i think that and now you got me all excited about this because I, I mentioned before that, you know, we live in a part of Springfield that was post-World War II housing for mill workers. And so I'm like, this, we're not reinventing the wheel. This has been done. That as, a, as communities, people coming back from World War II or when there were times when we needed just like sturdy little affordable housing, we were able to do it. So why is it so hard for us to do that now? And I think that it's gonna take us just really kind of rolling up our sleeves and getting the right people at the table to be really focused on that. And I also have you no know, people who are in housing that would move out of, you know, they're in their starter home 
or they're in a smaller home and their family's grown and if they could find a house to purchase and move into then they would move on and then their house would be available for somebody else and we're not seeing enough of that because we don't have enough inventory so i think having a clear understanding of that and getting some creative people at the table to dig into that. And so that's one piece of it, but that doesn't really address the piece that you're talking about, about the in-house. And we have definitely in Springfield created a climate that is more challenging. We have our, um, I call it the no panhandling, but I get people gripe at me when I do, they say it's no loitering. So we have like actual laws and actual statutes to say people can't, you know, fly a sign or raise money or stand on a corner in Springfield which doesn't mean that we don't have unhoused people in Springfield. It means that we've pushed them out of where we can see them. And when I was out knocking on doors and going in neighborhoods, I was learning all of the places that unhoused folks are living in Springfield. You know, they're living near the under railroad bridges and they're living in our parks. And so it's, we've, we've just sort of tried to make the problem or, and I, I don't even really see it as a problem. I see it as like a challenge and a reality. We've tried to make that invisible and that keeps us from really addressing it. I think that's one of the things that's real, you know, that if we don't see it, we're like, oh, that's not a priority. And I have just to add to the big pile of that, you know, we're in a time where people are really, the, the economy is tanking and people are really stressed and we have had this moratorium on people's, you know, being, not being able to be evicted. And I have really strong concerns that I continually voice that what's going to happen at the end of that? What's going to happen when people have built up four, five, six past due mortgage payments and are still, are still underemployed or still economically stressed or are more so economically stressed and we start to see people lose their homes? What's going to happen then? And I think we should have a plan for that. That's a lot. No, that's good. Uh, just so the voters know that you know what you're talking about. What is an ADU? Oh, it's an auxiliary dwelling unit. So it's like a, you know, like a, a grandma cottage or an apartment or, you know, in your that you can build. I do understand that it is a regional state problem. I understand that. And I'm not trying to imply that it's all the city of Springfield's responsibility. And I know that they're working in concert with different regional ideas, different regional partners and state partners to try to solve it. But I, I'm just acknowledging as a resident of this city, we have a problem. We do. People can't, and, and people are losing the ability to pay for rent or mortgages without having to work multiple jobs and or sacrifice being able to spend time with their children and having to keep them in daycare so much because they're having to work uh, all of the time. And I'm not blaming any, anyone for that. That is life, but it is having a massive impact on our society. And these are real world problems. Now, what do you know uh, about, just off the cuff, uh, what's the level of our housing inventory? Do you have any idea what we have? I don't know the answer of that, to, to the answer to that right now. Um, I know that things are Things are shifting a little bit in terms of who's buying houses because I was really, I met with some realtors a couple of months ago and I was like, had my idea of what I thought was happening with the housing market. And so I was like, oh, are people, you know, buying vacation homes? What's, what's keeping things afloat in terms of the housing market? And one of the people told me that they're getting people from out of the area 
So that's a fun thing to think about because now that people are working remotely, they are realizing they don't have to live wherever they want to. So now they can purchase houses in some place where it's, you know, it's the cost of living is cheaper or whatever. So, and my reaction to, I sort of seized up a little bit, my reaction to that, because I'm like, hey, I don't want to be territorial and I don't want to be somebody who's like, oh, you know, no outsiders, because that's not at all true. But it's more like, man, we're already struggling with this. And now people who can come in, and I know this from the last time we were buying this house, you know, to get outbid by somebody with a cash bid or whatever. So that's part of, that, that puts a strain on our communities. Um, so I think that's, so even though I don't know exactly what the inventory is, I know that things are still moving really quickly and people are still very much priced out of the market. And I appreciate organizations like Dev Northwest that are purposefully, intentionally trying to get people ready to be first time home buyers. Cause like, I want those people to live in Springfield. Let's talk a little bit about what are your ideas about how to help create family wage jobs? So I think that there's a few things that go hand in hand with that. Small businesses are a big piece of what creates family wage jobs and, and businesses that are supporting whole families, basically, um, when you have a family business. I know you know about that because you and Abigail have, you know, small businesses and that's how you're supporting your family. So that's a key piece to it. I also am a strong supporter of labor and union jobs and those those jobs that are, you know, like, you have people helping to advocate so that you're getting paid a living wage and you have decent health care. So I think that's part of it. I think um, it's, and this is where I sometimes get into trouble, but we're just, we'll just pretend like we're just chatting and nobody's watching. I think that if we put too much energy into courting larger corporations that come in and pay minimum wage jobs, that undercuts our, you know, that undercuts are making, putting energy into small businesses and living wage jobs. And I get it that people say, well, we can do both and because we want to have those large employers. Okay. <laughs> but when we attract those large employers, we tend to give them a tax break. So it's not like they're coming in and they're starting to immediately support things. The dream is that they're going to stay and they're going to create these jobs and they're going to get involved in the community and eventually they're going to come back on the tax rolls. That doesn't always happen. Whereas our small businesses are there, they start out that way, right? They're paying payroll taxes and they're, they're paying for the property taxes and all that stuff from the beginning. They don't get those kind of breaks normally. So I think the, the, the combination of small businesses and really supporting those labor jobs and Add on to that, I mean, I, and I know that it sounds a little bit idealistic, but I'm like, if we're building more housing, those are good jobs, right? And we have these partnerships with Lane Community College, and we're bringing people in who are going to get the training and do those jobs. So I think doing the work of strengthening our community also builds living wage jobs. That is a lot to take into consideration regarding... <laughs> You know the, the SDCs that get waived, all these fees that get waived, and I'm I know that it's it helps when you're attracting a business, it helps when you're attracting an employer, it helps when you're trying to stimulate the economy. But as you say, 
the smaller businesses, they don't have the opportunity to receive those kinds of uh, breaks. Now, here we are in this economic upheaval here in the, not just here, all over the globe, but in, you know, in America, over a million people every week are filing brand new first time unemployment claims. What, do, what have you learned about the local economy? What kind of losses have we had? And I know that's a big question, but I think it's incumbent upon both you and your opponent to sit down with the Springfield Area Chamber of Commerce and have some long, hard conversations about what it looks like and or, as well as with the county. What mm -hmm. are we looking at? What have we lost? What are our potentials? What might recover? Have you have you been able to put any thought into that er those areas? I have put some thought into those areas, and I'm also, um, as you know, I sort of have this overlaying lens of working in the nonprofit world, in that I'm seeing it from different sides. So through the pandemic, I'm seeing all of the the need that's arising in all of the communities. And so I'm seeing, seeing that immediate impact of like, oh, food insecurity, people aren't able to afford this, people aren't able to afford this, people have lost their jobs, businesses are closing. Um, you know, some small businesses, as you know, were really impacted in the beginning. You know, the, the people who cut hair and do our nails and do those things had to actually physically close down and are still trying to rebuild and reopen with additional expenses. So that's real too. It's like I go and get my nails done at the nail niche, which is right on Mohawk and is fabulous. I don't know how many more people they can take, but, um, and Brie who does my nails, when she reopened, she had a whole bunch of things she had to do. You know, like now she's wearing a mask. She's got to change her station. She, when we come in, there's all these extra things. And those are, those are costs. And I was like, well, you're going to raise your rates, right? And she's like, well, I, feel hesitant to raise my rates because we're in this time and I just want to like start rebuilding my business. I'm like, oh, this is part of what, what complicates it for small businesses, as you know, right? It's like any business seems like it's better than no business. And so in my experience, and this is an absolute bias to my passion for small business owners and liking to know who I do business with, tend to be really compassionate people who like know their customers are like, I don't want to put an extra stress on you. So here, you know, so um, I think that that's part of what we're in terms of trying to figure out what does the climate look like and how precarious people are hanging on because some people have had to kind of kind of close, partially close, reopen in some ways. Some of my favorite businesses are just, you know, things are they're closing and um, I think that it's a long way out for us to really understand how this is going to impact us long term. And I think that also as part of that story, some businesses are doing really well. So we have, as we're looking at what's, what's a problem or what's going wrong or where the big challenges are, I think it also helps to look at who's doing well and why and how we can add that to the pot when we talk about it so and as you know I'm a huge fan of the chambers and and um, but I also think that we also need to be looking ahead because we're in it now but what can we in any way figure out what's it gonna look like in a year or two years and how can we steer the boat let's talk about um, the unhoused 
there's um, a lot of unhoused high school students. There's a lot of unhoused families for all kinds of different reasons. What are some of the thoughts that you might have if you're elected to Ward 3 and you're elected to the council? What ideas do you have that might be of service and support to this category of our residents and how we could be, um, might be able to solve some of these problems? Right. So one of the, the kind of limitations that Springfield has put on housing for the unhoused is in terms of where you could have a trailer or where somebody could be. And it's been in churches or businesses, that churches or businesses are the only ones that could house it, like at the G Street Oasis or at a church where you could have a couple of um, campers where people could live temporarily. And I know that there's been pressure to expand that to like private property or you know people that have a spot in their yard or whatever. So I think that's part of it is like, how do we find more spaces for people? I think that's important. Um, and I think just in my experiences of working in basic needs and working with so many unhoused folks, people tend to move, especially in um, when the economy is like this and when housing is so tough and things are so upended, people move in and out of housing. And so they're not in like stable housing, but on any day, some different people are unhoused. And that makes it really challenging to address that because it's like, okay, we want to get people in housing, right? So we, and we want to look at numbers. So, you know, I've gone to the poverty and homelessness board meetings. They're like, we're going to set a goal of getting this many people in housing. We're going to start with bets and we're going to start here. And we're going to start there. But what's sometimes missing from that conversation is that it's, it's a little bit of a wiggly boat <laughs> that people move in and out. They might live with family for a while and then they lose their housing for whatever reason. And I think we're gonna see so much more of that coming up um, because people are, and particularly, and I know you've probably seen it, you know, with people needing to be, um, needing to be quarantining, you don't see as much of that because people aren't like blending households and not blending households because it's still like, wait, we've got to, we've got to be on lockdown. And we can't be doing this. So um, I think we're going to see, I, I think that addressing that wiggliness, which is a really nice way of saying it, it's just a sort of precariousness of people moving in and out of housing is one of the ongoing challenges. And having the temporary housing or the, the crisis housing or things like Square One Villages does initially is really helpful because you can just start by like housing first, right? Let's get people off of the streets. Let's get them into some shelter. And we need more of that. And we don't really have anything like that in Springfield in terms of like the, the tiny housing, the small housing, the transitional housing. There's not enough concerted effort around that. And I would like to see us get really more intentional about that because I think we're going to need more of that and we already aren't addressing the need we have. Yeah, it doesn't seem realistic. If, let's just say worst case scenario. Let's just say worst case scenario when the moratorium ends uh, on rent, mortgages, things of that nature. And it's hard on everybody. It's hard on the landlords. It's hard on the property management organizations. It's hard on those that own those houses. So we know it's not all one way. It's, it will have profound impact across the community as a whole. 
I've, I guess I'm just a little concerned that maybe we're thinking it can't happen or it won't happen. And if it does happen, we're just going to continue to make policies that that segment of our population is just going to have to go somewhere else. I just don't see how we can any longer. I understand we want to maintain property values, the look of the city. Mm -hmm. I, I understand all of that, but this is not something across the breadth of this nation that's uh, ignorable anymore. And I'm concerned that we're going to keep trying to create uh or continue to have a mindset it's it doesn't really exist as long as we keep it out of plain sight right i completely agree with you because i think that we're so busy um and i saw this with the patrician mobile home park we're so busy looking at well what are the rules what are the laws what are our what are the constraints and then we're like you know what we can't do anything with that this is just the way it is Whereas my experience and how I have like led organizations and teams is I like to say like, where is it that we need to be? Like, what is the dream? If, if money were no object, if laws and restrictions and codes were no object, what would it take and how many people would we need to have housed and what would that look like? Because if you start there, then you, you don't start by seeing the barriers and the fences. You start by saying, look, we need to pay attention to this and how are we going to deal with that? So I, I, I completely agree with you that we are definitely thinking, you know what, well, how bad can it get? And is that really our problem? And that's not the role of the city or that's not the role of this as opposed to, okay, if it's not the role of the city, who is it? And who do we need to get at the table in order to make that happen? And where is it that we need to go? And I think that, I think that you're absolutely right in that we think that, well, you know, if we, if, we don't, if we don't make it hospitable, right? That's the idea. It's like, if we don't make it hospitable, these people that we have decided are coming from somewhere else will go away. When the people who are unhoused in Springfield, are most of them are, are people who have ties here. And that is how it is in most smaller towns it's like people their families live here they live here they did have a house they lost it so they're not strangers and they're not transients they're people who live here and have ties and want to be a part of this community and it's up to us to make room for all of them so i i i think you and i agree on this and i get a little bit crabby because we talk about the barriers as opposed to you know we made up those barriers. So how do we unmake up those barriers and create opportunity for people to be safe and housed? I just think that this is going to be a real problem and we just can't continue to ignore it. And there has to be direct action taken. I appreciate Chris McAllister in Springfield. That, that young man is committed to making a positive impact and a positive difference and to addressing these issues that are real and that are viable. And I'm hopeful that he'll be invited to the table to address those concerns uh, because he has lived that life. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, and he has been such a tireless and fearless advocate. And I think that, and he also, I think we, we need more of that. We need more people who understand that there are systems that are working against it and that the challenges of homelessness are not linear, that different people are homeless. People are homeless for different reasons. They're experiencing different barriers and challenges. And I agree with you that Chris has just 
such a deep understanding of that and seems to never tire of working to make those improvements. And I, I don't know that we could do this work without him. All right, Ward 3 City Council. We have a lot of things going on in the world, in our nation, in our local community. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about some social justice issues. Uh, you are indeed an LGBTQ candidate. Mm -hmm. You have that's its own set of uh, prejudices, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. misunderstandings, uh, assumptions. How do you, if you are elected to Ward 3 City Council, what different paradigm would you bring to the council regarding concerns about race, social justice, equity, and, and diversity? I think that, I, you know, yeah, I have a, a personal experience, but I also have worked and um, kind of, and it doesn't always feel like work. It just is like, that's been part of, part of how I've shown up in the world is working on um, diversity, equity, inclusion, access, kind of decolonization, and trying to do, do my part as a white person to, to restructure things. And in the course of doing that for decades have, have developed um, a deepening <laughs> understanding of the challenges that are facing our community. So for example, um, just to throw all the things in terms of like race and public safety, um, I have a really good friend who lives about a block and a half from me and um, her, she's black, African-American, as is her family and as is her son. And one time we were talking and I was saying, or she said that she had gotten pulled over by the police on her way to work. And she's like my age, a couple years younger, as she likes to point out. I'm not your age, I'm four years younger. So, um, and I said, oh, and she said, yeah, she says it happens like every couple weeks. She says, my son gets pulled over probably three or four times a month. And I was like, so just so you know, I said, just to validate that this experience that we are having in Springfield, living a block and a half apart, I have never been pulled over. So even though I may be going through the world as a, as a lesbian, and I may be going through the world with that, I'm still also going through the world as a white person, and I'm having different experiences. And so for me, understanding that, and understanding that what for whatever reason, because of bias and racism and all of those things, that I'm still experiencing life as a white person in addition to that. And having that understanding that this is happening in Springfield and we can't pretend it isn't, is also a part of what we need to talk about. And we need to say, just because I'm not experiencing it, and I have these personal feelings or biases or, or appreciation for um, the police department or whatever doesn't mean that somebody else isn't experiencing it very differently and that needs to be part of the conversation too so i think that first of all and i've heard some some talk from elected officials and people saying well we're gonna have to start to talk about this and we're gonna have to get uncomfortable i'm like well we we have been trying to talk about this this isn't new my friend's family has been in springfield for you know 50 years so has experienced this and is still like Springfield is my hometown and these are our experiences being a black African-American family in Springfield so this isn't a new challenge 
but we can't ignore it any longer. And we're going to have to talk really authentically around it and, and get really down into what is happening for people that are experiencing this, whether they're um, Latino, Lat Latina, Latinx folks who are experiencing Springfield differently, um, new arrivals who are experiencing Springfield differently, that we no longer as white people get to say, you know what, my, this is my Springfield and this is how it's been, that we're gonna have to open up that dialogue and say, you know what, if uh, people are experiencing the, whether they're experiencing services at the city, they're experiencing the library, how they're experiencing our city is different and that's where we need to start because that's where those inequities are built in. Does that answer your question or does that make it more complicated? No, I, you answered the, the question and I think that your response, in your response, what would you say to someone that is Caucasian in this city and say, you're, you're part of the problem, Corey, because you're overreacting along with everybody else and now you're blaming me for everything that's wrong here. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the culture that we have. What would what would you say to those people that now, upon hearing this, might see you as the enemy? Right. Well, I don't know. I think when we start talking about this is right and this is wrong, then we fall into those like here's the good guys and here's the bad guys, right? But what is really true is that we have all co-created this world and this city together, and we will continue to co-create this world and the city together. And there is, I, I will never be able to experience the world or Springfield or the state of Oregon in all the different ways that other people do. I also know that there are people who have, you know, lived for 60, 70 years and are like, this is, things are just fine. Like, things are, fi things are fine. I'm like, okay, things are fine for you. So we're not taking anything away from you, but we are trying to expand how people are living in Springfield so that more people have access and more people are able to experience that prosperity or that whatever that you have. And I, I do have these conversations on a very regular basis where people are like, you know, I just don't, I just didn't see it that way, or I don't see it that way. I'm like, that's okay, right? That's, that's okay for you not to see it or understand it. However, this is where leadership comes in, and this is where, you know, having a strong vision for a city or a council, or, or if you're the people running an organization or a business, that's where leadership steps in and says, okay, but here's where we're going, right? Here's where we're going to go, and we're going to make sure we all try to get there together because what happens and you probably realize this is that overall we all tend to benefit when we make these kind of changes it's like you know the curb effect we put in we put in the ramp curves at the intersections for to to meet the ada compliance years ago and what ends up happening is people with strollers people with bicycles people who just you know have a walker whatever are able to cross at the intersections more safely and it ends up being this benefit for all of us so i get I totally get, because I grew up in that family, I get that people are afraid that they're going to lose something, but in the end, which has been proven over and over again, by making room and by being inclusive and creating accessibility, it actually ends up benefiting everybody. So, that sounds idealistic, but I believe it to be true. 
Well, I just think it's really important because we are, I think, in humanity, we are finding it too easy to identify our enemy instead of trying to find ways to talk about particular issues that are really challenging. And it, it's hard to keep hearing and seeing where we're not making progress. And I think a lot of conversations are going to need to start taking place at the city level. That doesn't mean those conversations will be quick, but we need to start having them quickly. Right. Yeah. The, the process is obviously going to take time because we're talking about culture. And so if we're going to hear what other people have to say, then we need to want to hear what other people have to say and not spend time thinking, I'm only doing this because I have to, and I'm just going to appease you for the next 45 minutes. And then I'm going to go home and forget about you because things really are okay. And they're not. They're not. They're not. So. Well, and and I wanted to say um, that. Well, now I forgot what I was going to say when you were talking. I was like, oh, I want to say this extra thing. Um, oh, I wanted to say that that I think that also at the base of some of that um, is fear. Right? We're we're afraid. We we have this fear of loss, or we have this fear that things are going to change, or we have this fear that somebody's going to take come and take something away, or that it is so uncomfortable, you know, it's so uncomfortable. And I, I guide these conversations with coworkers and with other organizations and committees and stuff all the time. And so I get to like dig into like, I, okay, I know it feels really uncomfortable and that's okay. Like I used to tell my kids, we can be scared and still do what we have to do. We can be, you know, it can feel awkward and we can feel like we're going to lose something, but I feel from my own personal experience, because I grew up in a rural community surrounded by white people, you know, bigoted relatives, the whole thing. I grew up in that. And my life has, by, by my being able to like push into that and unpack that and face all of those, those fears, my life has gotten bigger and more diverse. And I get, I am experience the gift of getting to know people who will let me know if I mess up, <laughs> you know, to be able to have those close friends who are people of color, like, you know what, you still have some bias and I'm, I trust and respect you enough to give you the opportunity to fix that. So I, I want that for everybody that is, I mean, seriously, like it is the more, the diversity isn't as scary as we make it out to be. The city of Springfield has done some really good things in regards to culturally all the art projects, uh, all the, uh, the murals downtown, the, the, all the changes at the library, all the bi uh, bilingual readings, the appreciation of Dia de los Muertos, all the things. They've done many, many good things. Uh, and I just wanted to make sure that I said that because uh, we're not implying that there's not... Uh, been a lot of good solid growth and development because there mm -hmm. has been and I remember years ago it's been 12 years now me you know it's changed a lot since then but when my myself and a couple of other Latino leaders tried to start Latino professional network here in Lane County we had a lot of pushback in this particular city we had a lot of people tell us um, what are you doing here ask us what are you doing here what do you want right well, well, yeah, and I think that you and I have talked about this too, is there's this, this idea when you're the, the sort of white 
dominant culture, there's this idea that, well, you can come to our tables, right? Come on, come to our tables. We'll make room for one or two or three. <laughs> and so when you try to form an affinity group or you try to form a group of people that are like, you know what, we, we want to support each other because we have this deep understanding of what it's like to try to be a small business owner who is Latino in this community, then people are like, but don't you want to come be a part of ours? And you're like, no, I don't want to come. And so that is also seen as somewhat of a threat because it's not getting it's, it's not I like to say everything gets colonized right it's not getting sucked into the dominant culture whereas it actually can be really helpful and eventually like you are a, a person who has done it you are also you are also joining the chamber and you are also getting involved in other ways once you like you're like okay all right I feel like I know what I'm doing I feel like I got my stuff yeah you know and even bringing that sand. up yeah even for me to bringing that up that experience up you know, we're live on Facebook. This is recorded. This is going to go out. It makes me nervous to bring it up. It makes me nervous to bring it up because people, I, I, I know human nature. I've been around it long enough. I know people will begin to discredit those comments. They'll begin to uh, minimize those experiences and act like they're not real. But those things were real. And mm -hmm. much worse than that was said, but because we're on video, I'm choosing not to say those things because I, that's just, I don't want to focus on that, but I just want the hearers to understand that it is a real experience and it has happened and it still does happen. And this is what, why people are trying to have conversations. And if you're elected to War 3 as a city councilor, you've got a lot, to, a lot of things ahead of you that you're going to have to lead people through difficult moments. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what you're touching on that, that discomfort, when you were talking about, I'm like, I know, I mean, I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but I know similarly, you know, I haven't talked about being in part of the LGBTQ community as part of my campaigning, because it's already, you know, being, being a female <laughs> already is a piece of, you know, how, a, a piece of, a piece of how I walk in this world. So, so it's this it's a similar thing and that I haven't wanted that to become a part of it because I really do believe in that you know we need to move Springfield forward for everyone and that while that is a part of how I experience the world that isn't necessarily going to make me any any more aware of like affordable housing issues or things that I think that are that are um affecting people but it's that trying to compartmentalize it because you're like what are people gonna say and they're gonna say it anyway because they have it's like what are they gonna do how do I try to control so that I fit into whatever it is that people are expecting um and so when you were talking about that I started I started to feel discomfort with you I'm like oh yeah I started thinking of things that I've experienced and go like yeah and then we just sort of like put that on the shelf and be like okay but here I am today Mm. Let's let's pivot to protests, your observations. How do you think, if you're elected to Ward 3, there's a lot going on culturally in this city. What do you think you would be able to do as a city councilor with the protests? A lot of people are very unsatisfied with the silence from our elected leaders the lack of response from our elected leaders and the lack of presence of the of our elected leaders. I'm one of those people. 
leadership is leadership and when you've been elected and you ask someone to vote for you and you tell them that you're going to be present the expectation is that you are legitimately going to be present and right. i'm not saying there's not other considerations um it's okay as leaders courage is not always there fearlessness is not always there expertise is not always there inherent or acquired skill is not always there but it doesn't cost anything to be present and it doesn't cost anything to listen. What do you think you would be able to do or that you would do differently if elected to Ward 3 City Council in the ongoing uh, cultural struggles that we're facing as a city? So I love this question and I'm so glad you asked it because I want to talk about it. Um, first of all, you know, the, the riots and the protests People riot and protest when they don't have a voice, when they're unheard, when they don't have a seat at the table, when they're not part of deciding where it is that their lives are going, right? So, so when people say, well, why are they doing this and why are they doing that? It's like, well, because they don't, they don't have a voice. They haven't had a voice. They haven't been included. And a lot of things are happening. There are people in multiple facets that feel like they don't have a voice. You know, we've seen the folks who feel like, you know, the, the timber unity folks who feel like they don't have a voice because we have a super majority in this, the state legislature. So it's like there's different people that don't feel like they have a voice so then they want to protest and they want to create the space to have a voice. I believe, and the, probably people will be like, well, she is so speaking out of turn, but we could have and could going forward have done a lot as a city and as elected officials to reach out and show up and open those dialogues and we didn't because it was that idea in my mind i've created it that it's this idea that well it's going to go away and you know we're in a community that protests and this is going to die down and let's see where it goes as opposed to you have a legitimate concern let's sit down and talk about it and i know that in the early days and you and i chatted about this a little bit when when we first had what happened to we first had the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota and that rippled out and we were having these sort of solidarity pro, solidarity protests here in Springfield and Eugene that it felt a little bit unclear you know what do you want what is it that what is it that you guys you all want and so there's this thought of like well they don't know what they want well maybe not in the first four days right but it it brings out this swelling of people who are like i felt unheard i want to participate i want to get involved this is my community too and the the role i think of the elected officials is not to like sit in a in a box and pretend like they don't see that but to say hey Let's have some chats, like, come on, let's talk about this. Let's work this through. How is it that you're experiencing it? So instead of saying, you know, this, we love the, our public safety and we're going to support them 100%, we can support them and find out how it is that other people are experiencing them and invite them to have those conversations. And you have done that in this, in using the platform that you have which is super helpful. And I would imagine, again, making it up in my head, I would imagine that some of our city councilors are watching that and are using that, whereas they could have said, come on, let's talk about this. Let's figure out what's going on and let's, let's find these, these ways that we can get involved and we can reinvent this together. So that is definitely a piece of who I am as a person moving forward. I tend to be someone who heads right into the knots and says, Okay, let's talk. Let's let's talk about it. Who is it that should be at the table? Who is it that's not? Who's missing? 
what are the problems and to have those conversations because by us being in positions of influence or power and, and ignoring that, that sends a stronger message than anything, which I think is part of what you're speaking to. It's like, you know, maybe you're afraid, maybe you think that it's not about you, but if this is our community and people care, we should be having those conversations. No, I agree. I, I look at, for instance, let's talk about um, Bonnie Mickelson and the Springfield Area Chamber of Commerce. I'm on their board of directors. We don't get to not talk about these the economic upheaval. We don't get to not talk about businesses that are closing down. It doesn't matter who owns it, uh, their cultural background, any of those uh, particular identifying factors. We're constantly talking about how do we help, support, advocate for the business community, the entire business community. What measures can we put into place? Vani's always dealing with issues at the state level, the state chamber, in Salem. Uh, the, we're all, as board members, we're always reading all of the statistics, all the information, having briefings with different individuals, staying current, staying involved, having these conversations. And as far as I'm concerned, someone like Vani Mickelson has been the mayor, so to speak, mm -hmm. because she's been out front, she's been influencing, she's been inserting herself into very difficult conversations because she's trying to help make sure that people's businesses don't close, people don't lose jobs, and then we've got all kinds of, that is happening, but then we've got problem upon problem upon problem upon problem, and so I'm not trying to be disrespectful to our elected officials. I know it's hard. I know it's scary. It's hard and scary for all of us. Mm -hmm. There are those that carry the elected title or appointed title of leader. And I do not believe it is too much to expect them to do exactly that. And that is lead. Nancy Newton, new city manager, comes into her new position in the midst of a pandemic in the midst of the protests, in the midst of now serious budget issues, and that, she oozes leadership. I love that about her. I just, you can tell she has incubated in the furnace and the fire of development for years. We need that from all of our leadership right now. And if you're elected to Ward 3 City Council, I for one have the expectation of you to actually do something with that leadership mantle, with that leadership position, with that leadership role, and become the servant leader to the community that we are desperately needing and lacking right now. Well, I'm going to take up that mantle, that challenge, Mark, because I definitely think of, um, I, first of all, I completely agree with you. Uh, I have not been able to like sit down and have a chat with Nancy Newton yet, but I met her when they were doing the interviews and just, you know, now maybe she'll see this. She was my top choice, even though I had no say and no positional power, positional power. I was like, I like that one. Um, so, and I can't even imagine what it's been like for her to step into this role at this time. Cause I know just in my daily life, I'm seeing that. And I think this is a little bit of what you're speaking to and we're kind of, we're kind of dancing around it is that there are different leaders that are made for different times. 
there, you know, we have different skill sets. There's no way all of us can do all of it. And there are some leaders that are like, you know, things are going good and we're going to make them better. Those leaders, you know, there are the people that are really good at making people feel good and making people feel supported or that. One of the things that I've said for years is that, and my daughter calls me the Mary Poppins of nonprofit management, is that I tend to really thrive in transition and chaos. And so I am that person who is more comfortable when, um, when things are, there's the upheaval and the challenges and to say, oh, okay, we need to instill confidence in our leadership. We need some fearlessness. We need some strategy. We need to be willing to make mistakes because I think that's another thing that happens when times like this happen. People are so afraid that they're going to make a mistake or they're going to go the wrong way or they're not going to be able to step it back. And there are times when you need leadership that is like, no, we, we do stuff. <laughs> we build bridges and we bring people to the table and we start moving the mountain of this chaos. And I think that perhaps we might be projecting a lot onto Nancy Newton because that's who we want as a city manager. Saying she's that person, but you know, to be able to to steer the ship in when the 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 waves are all over the place is a different kind of leader than one who can sit there and be like, look at how great things are. Well, you know, I would just, I'd like to just say to all of our elected counselors right now in this very challenging times that we have, I would just like to make a promise to you that if you make a mistake, uh, I will be the last person to attack you. If you make a mistake, I will be the last person to get on the bandwagon to destroy you. If you make a mistake, I'll be the last person to stand in front of a crowd and throw stones at you. If you make a mistake, at least you make a mistake leading, and that that's acceptable to me. We're not we don't all know the right thing to say, Corey. We don't all know uh, what are the best expressions, what are the most profound words, what are the most always the most politically correct. But I believe that when you respond sincerely. When you respond genuinely, uh, there's an acceptance that, okay, this interaction and this exchange, it's real. So whatever, whatever back and forth takes place, we can grow in that moment of the conflict and get better at that kind of communication. I agree with you. And just to sort of expand on that, one of the things I tell my team at United Way, particularly as we strive to... Um, you know, be more um, anti-racist and to work more with emerging organizations or organizations that are led by people of color. There's also been a lot of fear and a little bit of hand-wringing like, oh, and I've said, you know what? We will know that we are starting to do this work authentically when people call us out. <laughs> and we will know it, when people come to us and say, you know what? You said you were gonna do this and I feel like you need to do it better. And exactly what you just said, that's relationship building too. Because if you can sit down with people and they can say, I am, you know, like, like we're saying, like we wanted you to show up more. We needed you to be more transparent or we want to see the city move in this different direction. Instead of feeling defensive to be able to say, oh, okay. Like, how did I screw up on that? And how do I do that better? And how do we get more real? 
that builds relationships. Like some of my, my strongest colleagues or people that I love working with are people that I've had some really intense conflict with and we've been able to work it through and say, okay, we found where it is that we agree or we shifted our, and by we, some, oftentimes it's me, shifted how I'm seeing the world. And those can be like these really strong relationships. So yeah, I agree with you. Let's talk about Springfield Police Department. Let's talk about, we need police. We want police to help us maintain safety and security. It's a hard time. It's a hard time for them. They're as human as we are. They have the same kind of concerns or concerns like we have in with different respects. They have families and children and hopes and dreams to do this long term, that to do a good job. A lot of people are pushing for police reform, police defunding the police, and ultimately abolishing the police. What are your thoughts on our SPD and some of these other peripheral issues that are coming around about? I know that they're passing some police reform at, at the state level and the nat national level. What about what does defending the police mean to you, and what are your thoughts on abolishing police? You, you, and you get to this now. We could have started with this and talked forever. So, first of all, I think we, ex as, a, as communities, we expect a lot from our police officers. And this comes back to us. We're, we're co-creating this world together. So, we have a lot of social issues, like the unhoused or mental illness or, or you know, or the health of our seniors. We have a lot of social issues that we are not necessarily taking care of, and then they become police issues. So I think that's something that we need to get really clear about because by the time it becomes a police issue, we've, we, we haven't dealt with it in these other ways. And so we're putting a lot of expectations and a lot of um, pressure, <coughs> excuse me, on our police department to meet all of the needs when something becomes a crisis. And some people are able to do that and some people aren't. And some people are able to do that a hundred times and then one time it's a bad day or it's a, the, the, the stars align in a way that it becomes a problem. We have been talking about accountability for public safety long before the pandemic and long before the racial upheavals that we're all experiencing. And we haven't really done it as well as we should in terms of getting really clear about what are our values as a community and what do we want? And are we expecting what are we expecting from our police officers? Now, the people who are police officers are, like you said, they're people and they carry biases and they carry racism and they carry homophobia and they carry all those things, just like all of the rest of us do. All of the rest of us aren't always walking around, you know, with badges and weapons. And so when it comes out in those very public ways, we all want to be like, you are a terrible person and your system is terrible. Okay, well then what do we do about that? How do we make that system better? So when I hear people say defund the police, I have also come to realize it means different things to different people. Like there are definitely people, and I watched the interview with the Black Unity folks who are like, we are not cooperating with police because of these reasons. 
So there are people who are like, we really do want to defund the police. We want something different. My spouse, I live with somebody who has a lot of family members who are police officers and who very deeply feels this on both a social issue piece and a these are individuals. And the people that I have worked with that have been police officers, and when I was at Junction City Local Aid, my pantry manager was a retired um, Lane County deputy. And he was genuinely somebody who got into that line of work because he wanted to be helpful and useful. So I think for us to say, you know, all cops are bastards or whatever, I get, I totally get the reasoning for it. And I get the movement of it. And I get the, the passion of it. And I get that things are more nuanced. And when we try to say, which, you know, I hear people say, well, you know, it's a, it's a lot of things. I'm like, it is a lot of things, but we need to name those things. We need to say, you know, our, our police force is predominantly white and it's predominantly male. And is that, is that what we want from our police force? Do we want to see more diversity? How do we get there? Do we want to shift the culture of our police department from being kind of this warrior response mode to being more like the guardians and this idea that a lot of us have when we think about police officers as being like the Andy Griffiths show, right? That it's like they've rolled up their sleeves, they're walking the beat, and we have to get really real about if that's what we want to see, if that's what we're expecting from our public safety, how do we help them to get there? And how do we shift off some of those social problems that we're expecting them to deal with in a, in a city of 63,000 people? How do we share the load so that they're not showing up at the, the worst possible situation and having to negotiate all of this personal stuff? And in addition to that, how do we support them so that we're getting the kind of police officers who are not going to be the ones who are participating in police brutality or are not going to be, you know, panicking under pressure? How do we support that? So does that answer your question or does that add more questions to it? Well, it answers the question. Uh, I think it's important that in whoever our elected officials are on the council, that it's a balanced approach, balanced thought process. I, I do not want to see the Springfield Police Department be blamed for everything that's going on. It's not, that's definitely not fair. That's definitely not right. Because if you call them, they'll come to your house at three o'clock in the morning to get, to get to you, to help you, and stop the person that's trying to hurt you. I believe that to be true. You know, I have a lot of law enforcement in my family, retired law enforcement in my family, federal, several family members that are still active law enforcement and high school folks that are law enforcement friends. And we must have a law enforcement uh, or police force because people are not always safe. People can be dangerous. There are uh, evil people in this world. So this idea that abolish the police, I'm not sure what they mean by that technically, but that is definitely not something that I personally could ever get behind or support. If I understand defund the police, they're saying move some resources around to different social areas. They Maybe they have to do that because uh, Lane County doesn't really have those funds or resources anymore. The state doesn't really have those funds or resources anymore. I mean, so who knows? I don't, that's a, that's a very complex. 
And you, then you have, you have to deal with budget issues on top of that. How do you fund that? Where does the money come from? Because the people here where we live, they have expectations, mm -hmm. right? And if you have a police force that is so small, that is so underfunded, even if you have someone in a mental health crisis and they're on some form of illegal or illicit drug or maybe illegal drug, and they have an overreaction, not the law enforcement, but the individual, they're having some kind of overreaction or over-response to stimuli, then you have to call law enforcement in. Um, I, I don't want to see us community members trying to become law enforcement. Because right. what, what rules then govern us? Who says that if I think you're a threat to me, all of a sudden I have the ability to harm you in, in whatever form I deem necessary because I perceive that you are a harm to me or you towards me. Then who mitigates that? What is the legal definition become then and who gets charged or, and see what I mean about the complexity? Mm -hmm. Well, and just to throw another, just more complexities into it, you know, we're talking about living wage jobs. We're talking about, you know, these are these are family wage jobs that people are, you know, they're they're and they're risky jobs, right? So they pay better than other jobs. Um, so and these are a job that you know people can get coming out of you know community college or coming out of high school or you know, so there's there's that piece too that adds to it. It's like okay. And when I, you know, a few people have asked me, they're like, oh, do, you know, do, how do you feel about defund the police? I said, well, I, I think we need to get really clear because I was a big proponent from the budget committee on of making sure that we prioritize funding those police body cameras. That is not defunding. That is more funding. So it's, do would I like to see less military grade weapons as part of our police departments or our, our sheriff's departments? Yes, because let's do less of that and more of body cameras and more of training and more of, you know, finding ways to diversify the police force so that we have more women and more LGBTQ and more people of color that are part of that. I'm not saying that that's going to fix everything, but those are some pieces that I feel like can start to push the culture in a different direction. <sighs> Yeah. Yeah, tough stuff. We've got about uh, 20 minutes left. I, I wanted to do an extended interview with you. I've, I, I, you know, for full disclosure, I've made the same offer to your opponent, Johannes Tadeo, waiting to hear back from him uh, for a date. Um, what are some, are there any, in closing, any other issues that you would like to talk about as a candidate that are important to you that you see as critical to express right now? So, yes, and this is something that's a little bit new for my, for things that I've been talking about, but this has definitely come out of the pandemic. I think, and this ties into how do we support our small businesses and how do we support our families? I've been part of some conversations and some strategy around childcare, um, because I think that's a huge issue. And I was in a meeting just a week ago with parents and um, about a third of those parents were primarily Spanish-speaking parents, so it was really helpful. We had a translator who was helping, and um, they were 
the majority of those were in the Springfield School District, just to, for some context. And the, the, the stress and the challenges that families are facing trying to work or have access to childcare or the mixed feelings, and I know that you're experiencing this firsthand, so we can't, how do I go back to work? Is it safe? Is it not? Where are we going to put these child, these, how are we going to make sure that there's childcare? So this is a thing that I think that there's definitely a role for everybody to play in this because it's going to take, you know, it's going to take private businesses, you know, can, can, can some of those larger private businesses stand up a daycare center in their, in their facilities? How are we going to make sure that we get people who can work it for those facilities? So I think that's going to be part of us trying to get everybody back to work is we're going to have to dig into childcare. And that is not a place that I think that our Springfield city government has been in recent history, but it's going to take all of us. I mean, it's going to take chamber folks. It's going to take businesses, it's going to take all of us to really pay attention to that and figure out how we're going to fund it where we're gonna make sure that we're getting childcare into the communities that need it the most. <laughs> Not necessarily the ones who can afford it, but where, the, where we need to have safe and healthy childcare. So um, I think that's a, that's a whole new thing to throw into the conversation, but I, I, we can't pretend that that's not part of, and a huge part of how we're gonna recover coming out of the pandemic. What is the United Way's program for the childcare that they've come up with? So this is, it's all still evolving. Um, and I think it's, it's a partnership with all sorts of people um, that is trying to figure out how do we get the money to sort of stand up these childcare and how do we leverage that with businesses. So it's still, it's all, it's all kind of coming together and we don't exactly know where it's going to go. But one of the pieces of it is trying to figure out where and what the need is, and how do we make sure that we have you know, qualified childcare providers who are able to do that work. So it's, it's still swirling, so stay tuned for that. And the, but there are ways for people to get involved too and to start to like share how they feel about it. Well, hopefully we'll hear from Johannes soon regarding an interview and in in a candidate's forum because I think that voters need to be able to hear both of you more. You've had to learn a lot since the last election with all that we've gone through. All of us have had to learn a lot. All of us have had to be willing to make lots of adjustments and changes. But in case that doesn't happen, in case, you know, for whatever reason, we can't schedule an interview with him in another candidate's forum, I know you have a candidates forum coming up with the city club. I'm on the board of directors there as well. So we're looking forward to that. Why don't you take a few minutes to talk to the voters about your candidacy, what you see and what you would, how, how you would like to represent them. So I think that what I bring to this, to, to the city of Springfield is um, this sort of vast and deep experience working to to sort of form these collaborative partnerships to address big issues. And as you know, and as I've talked to people, you know, I've worked in nonprofit for most of my career, and it's been around solving these kind of community issues and figuring out how we do that and how do we raise money and how do we create jobs to do that. So I think that depth of experience along with my just my understanding 
I mean, I think that's part of it. It's, it's to have this overview of how all of these different pieces work together. How does the county work with the city of Springfield, work with the city of Eugene? How do private partnerships come into play with that? How do you leverage that to make, you know, the, 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 make the most of it? I think that's a perspective that I bring to this candidacy, really. Um, it's just that sort of deep and long experience. And I think that I also have, I, I have a passion for how do we make sure that nobody gets left behind? I don't know how to say it. It's like this passion for being as inclusive as possible and this passion for problem solving beyond what's easy because it's easy to say, you know what, there's going to be collateral damage. I'm sorry. We just, you know, these people matter and these people don't and that's just too bad. And, you know, I've spent decades working to say, how do we not do that? How do we make sure that we start with the people who have the most need or we start with how do we make sure that nobody gets left behind and move through that? So I think that's part of it. I think the other thing that I bring is this um, ability to have these kind of conversations in a really open and transparent and non-defensive way because we're not all going to agree and we're going to have different you know value systems and we're going to we're going to have different even ways of talking about things and i think that you know my ability to sort of sit in the ring and see those conversations through in a and and when in doubt, I just tend to just get really transparent. Like when in doubt, let's say what's really happening and let's like turn over all the rocks and say it. And I know that that can feel really scary and people are like, well, how are we? And I've had this said to me before, how are we going to put everything back in the box? And I'm like, we're never going to put everything back in the box. We're just going to keep taking it out of the box because what kind of a world are we going to leave for our children and our kiddos if they're still having to solve these same problems and they're still having to skirt around these same issues, wouldn't it be better if we were able to unpack that and do our part? So I think those are some of the, just sort of the, the personal skills and experiences that I bring to the table. And then I do think that um, the ability to, to realize that we are all kind of co-creating this and we are all deciding that here are the laws and here are the codes and here are the things because we tend to act like that's like handed to us and it takes a, a, a bit of fortitude to say you know we don't have to do it this way forever how can we do this differently and how do we sort of jump off that cliff together and figure out how to do that and that and this is the thing I've started to say in terms of um, that, that's part of what I believe, firmly believe the community is asking us to do. They're asking us to do more, to step up, to get creative, to help Springfield grow from the small town to this more diverse town and this um, more complicated town. You know, we still want to like cling to our, our heritage and our thoughts of being a timber town. Well, that's, that's part of our history, but I really genuinely hear from the people on the doors and the people that are sending emails and that, that they want to see more. <laughs> they, want, they want us as, as leaders and as elected people and as business leaders or whoever, they want to see us do more and they want to see us do better and they want to see us um, step up to the challenges and not 
keep sliding back into how it's always been. Very good. I have one more final question for you. And it's a hard question. Ooh, okay. You're sitting in a room full of all the local patriot groups. And they're concerned from the for the people that I had conversations with. Uh, they said they understand why we have protests and they they support why protesters are expressing themselves in that way, but they are against economic damage, damaging people's businesses, homes, or individuals in here in Springfield. If you're elected to city council, what would you say to them about your intentions as a leader as well as who they are as part of the city, their importance to our community, how would you address their concerns? That is a great and hard question um, because in my, in my value system, people come before things, but I also very intensely understand that part of our identity as Americans is, you know, that we we have things and we own things and we have property and it's the second amendment, right? We have the right to bear arms and to protect our family and to protect our business. So I think that we have, we have to hear that and we have to hear what, where that fear and where that is coming from. And we also have to talk about lives and people and where those fit into that, that conversation. I think that, um, what part of what happens whether you're talking to people that have really strong feelings on any side is that it can feel really black and white and the gray feel is what feels uncomfortable right that's the part that feels really squishy they're like well how can you be for this and how can you be for that and I think if we can get to that place and I can and if I was sitting at a table with them I would start with what what I said earlier what is the world you want to see where is it that you want to see this go? And I haven't, for a couple of years, sat down with somebody who had those sort of super strong feelings about it and was able to say that. And I'd say, where are the, you know, during the, the lead up to the last presidential election, I had several of those conversations. I'm like, what is it that's, where is it that you think the world is going or isn't going? And how do we address that? Because I think we can cling, we cling to our dogma, right? We cling to like, our sayings and our dogma as opposed to getting to where is it that you want to go because i believe and this could be a little bit idealistic but i believe that oh, most of us want to get to the same place right people want to have access to prosperity and they want to be happy and they want their families to be safe and they want to have access to affordable housing and they want to know that they've got enough to eat and i think that we all want to get to that same place and because of the systems that we've built in this country and in the city, some people have gotten there and now, and some people haven't. And because we're thinking of things in this really black and white way, we think, well, if somebody else is going to get some, I have to lose some. It's kind of like if we're, why don't we just add more seats to the table? So I think if I was sitting in a room, it would definitely be like, tell, tell me where it is that you want to go. Can we get past the, the fear reaction of what it is that you're feeling in this moment and what feels like a threat to be like, what is, what is the world that you want to see? And then how can we bring that together with the world that other people want to see? Well, that's a good question because I think it's, it's really important that all of our elected officials remember both sides 
and both perspectives or however many groups are represented. We all live in this community. I'm not going anywhere, you're not going anywhere. And we have to find a way as much as is possible to peaceably uh, coexist honorably and respectfully one towards another. And those, that is something that's really important to me that our elected officials that we're not choosing sides. I know everyone has their supporters and I'm not trying to uh, discredit any of that, but we're no longer live in a world where we can just ignore these kinds of hard moments and hard moments, these difficult times, and we have to be able to broach very difficult conversations, especially with the people that, are, that we have disagreement with. And so I appreciate you taking that time to say that. Well, and I think one of the things that I remind myself constantly, and my spouse Terry and I talk about, is that, you know, Springfield is a city of 63,000 people. Of those 63,000 people, you know, there's 41 of them, I think, 41,000 are registered voters. Of those, how many actually vote in an election or vote, you know, so, so when we say, or when elected people say, you know, I was a duly elected by a majority of the vote of people in Springfield. Well, that isn't really what happens. You know, it's such a small portion that votes. So I think that, that the important thing for people who are elected to remember is that you represent the people who voted for you, the people who donated to your campaign, and all of the other people who didn't. That you represent, and particularly in Springfield, because everybody votes. So even if you're, you're elected to represent Ward 3, you have to be able to represent everybody. That doesn't mean that you're going to agree. That doesn't mean that you're going to do what's best for everybody all the time, but you have to be willing to hear those and to, to respectfully appreciate the different perspectives that people have and the different challenges. Because if you're just like, you know what, I got 6,000 votes, well, that's like a tiny fraction of who lives here. And it's the work, I believe, of the elected official to keep getting themselves out into the community so that they truly understand what all of those people that didn't vote need and want to. Very good. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, we've had uh, Corey Rodley here, uh, candidate for Ward 3 City Council and race in Springfield. And let me say, I think when I typed in for the live, Facebook live feed, I might have typed in Ward 2, so I'll, I'll correct that. Uh, so we're looking forward. Hopefully, uh, we'll hear from Johannes Tadeo, her opponent, for an interview and an extended candidates forum. But Corey, we thank you for today. Uh, thank there you. You're welcome. There were no questions sent to you. This was all conversational, off the cuff, uh, of an intuitive uh, conversation. So best wishes and good luck to you in your campaign. Thank you. And I, as you know, I appreciate that you have these conversations because it's giving, especially now during the pandemic, where it's giving us a chance to stay connected to the issues and the people. And I really appreciate you doing this. Well, thank you very much. We wish you the best. And we'll look forward to uh, seeing you out in, in the next candidate forum for Springfield City Club and hopefully here uh, in the near future. Thank you, Mark. Have a good day.